everyone welcome back to the rockcast jordan bud here your host and today i have my friend abby lair on to talk to us about altitude sickness and so abby thanks for (laughs) 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 thanks for laughing you're very welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me uh, on your podcast. This is going to be a lot of fun, and I hope lots of information that we can share with your audience and your listeners. Definitely. So you're a doctor. I am. I call you the lung doctor. <laughs> <laughs> but what uh, what is your title? Yep. Um, so my official title is I am an associate professor of medicine at the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado. I am a practicing pulmonary and critical care physician. So what does that mean? That means that I'm a specialist that focuses on diseases that affect the lung. Um, And as we get into diseases that um, can occur at altitude, and I also practice in the medical intensive care unit. So when um, patients become very critically ill, I'm there to help support them through their process. Gotcha. So I, I guess first as a disclaimer, you were on the Kafaru cast, but I did not steal you from the, the Kafaru cast. You're also my friend. <laughs> That's and very true. Yes. So yeah. We're going to talk about the same thing you did on there. Kind of, um, you know, like high altitude getting, you know, folks have gotten pulmonary edema. Um, Frank, the tank almost died. <laughs> and you told me it was bad. It was bad. It was yes. bad. Yeah. I'm glad that podcast, you cannot see my face. I have no poker face. And so, uh, yeah, you could just hear my voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, I kind of wanted to take it a, a step further and talk about some other things like some supplements that you can buy that are on the market now um, that you can buy that are supposed to help you and kind of I have to thank you a ton because you went into some serious research on those things. And so we're going to talk about those a little bit. But one of the main things I kind of wanted to hit on was uh, just straight up prevention. And for folks that are, you know, from back east coming out west, maybe especially if it's your first trip and you've never been at high altitude, so you don't know how you're going to act. Um, especially those who may have some like pre-existing conditions. Um, what kind of pre-existing condition would you definitely recommend that they go talk to a doctor before they go to high altitude? Yep. So, um, so great conversation. I think that the information, I hope it's going to be very helpful to um, people coming from sea level and potentially below. So we refer to those um, as lowlanders, if you will. So as a disclosure, yes, I live in the um, beautiful state of Colorado at Denver. So that's a mile high. So everyone else who's below that would be considered a lowlander, I guess. So in thinking about prevention of high altitude illness, um, so a couple a couple of things places to start. So f- firstly when thinking about coming to altitude, there is a um, ceiling I guess of when people should start thinking about the risk for high altitude sickness and that's generally about 8000 feet or so. So you asked about medical conditions that people should um, consider if they're coming from sea level to altitude and I would put them into two broad categories, um, lung diseases and heart diseases. So from a lung disease perspective and thinking about people who um, come to altitude for either the adventure, camping, and or or hunting, 
um, patients who have or people who have a diagnosis of COPD, that's a result of smoking, but there are some occupational related um, exposures that can lead to emphysema and or COPD. I would also think about patients who have or people who have asthma and uncontrolled asthma um, in the spectrum of lung diseases. In regard to heart disease, those individuals who have um, a weak heart or congestive heart failure, uh, those would um, those three individuals or those three cohorts would be the ones that I would consider being at a higher risk because of medical conditions and should seek out medical um, advice before coming to altitude. Okay, what uh, what would your physician, if that's the right word, what would mm-hmm. their doctor probably um, prescribe to them. Yep. So in thinking about medications that help prevent high altitude sickness or the effects thereof, and we can get into what high altitude sickness is. Um, but one of the uh, most widely prescribed and more commonly prescribed medications is something called azetazolamide or Diamox. So trade name is Diamox. Um, generic name is acetylcholamide, and it's essentially a medication that um, makes people pee. So it's a diuretic, but it breaks down at a chemical level. It breaks down a certain um, chemical that is um, produced in our body um, in response to going to high altitude. So we can get into the physiology. I won't geek out too much. I am a geek at baseline, um, but I'll try to translate that a little bit for your audience. So azetazolamide is something that's oftentimes prescribed. Um, You can only get it through a prescription. Okay. So we will get into, and I know the majority of this um, podcast is um, in reference to medications or supplements that do not require a prescription. But I would, for anybody who's considering coming to altitude and there's a concern for high altitude sickness, I would say getting into uh, to be seen by a primary care physician to have that conversation about what medical conditions they, they might have that might be affected um, or could put them at a higher risk for high altitude sickness and potential um, uh, prescription for azetylcholine would be important. Okay. So I guess we'll back up and talk about, I guess, what is high altitude sickness and why you get it. <laughs> Um, I should have went over that first, but that's all right. That's all right. So high altitude sickness is a um, spectrum of diseases that happens to individuals who come to altitude and um, uh, get up to a higher altitude very quickly. So the normal response to anybody who goes to altitude, and truly this is anybody from anywhere in the country going to a higher altitude your body undergoes um, several responses that are adaptive to lower oxygen that's in the ambient environment or lower partial pressure, if you will, or hypobaric oxygen. So as we go up to altitude, although the same amount of percentage of oxygen is available in the air, the amount of pressure, if you will, that it takes to get oxygen into our body decreases. So the normal response to um, anyone that goes to altitude is their breathing rate goes up. So we hyperventilate. That's to overcome the thin air, if you will. Um, and when we hyperventilate or breathe too quickly, we get more oxygen into our body, but then we lose carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is a normal byproduct of cellular metabolism. We all create it. But when we breathe too quickly, 
we lose that more quickly and we develop um, an imbalance in the acid base in our blood system. We become more basic um, or we develop, um, in medical terms, it's called a respiratory alkalosis. That is a sustained response to low oxygen is a higher breathing rate, respiratory alkalosis. Our body does not like to be out of um, a normal acid-base balance, if you will. So our kidneys then respond to to sensing that change in the acid-base status. And so it increases, the the kidneys will increase the production of um, something called bicarbonate or bicarb in our body to help to normalize the pH. So we develop a respiratory alkalosis, so higher pH because we're breathing off acid. Our kidneys respond by creating more of a base. Um, And so we will develop a metabolic acidosis, if you will, and that acidosis also causes a diuretic response, a normal diuretic response. So people um, feel as though they have to urinate out more. Okay. So we can become dehydrated. Low oxygen can also cause um, an increase in our uh, sympathetic tone or that fight or flight. So what happens in that event is that we have an increase in our blood pressure in our increase in our heart rate. These are all normal adaptive responsive responses to the thin air at altitude. The challenge becomes, or the issue becomes, is when our body doesn't respond appropriately um, to lower oxygen, and there is a significant amount of variability. If you and I were suddenly to go up to 10,000 feet, my heart rate and your heart rate might be very different. And that's individualized, and it's um, um, and, and as I said, it's individualized based on an individual's cardiovascular fitness, what their chronic medical diseases are, et cetera. So as our bodies are attempting to acclimatize to a lower oxygen, our cellular metabolism or our cells, their response to low oxygen and these changes in our acid base um, in our blood also changes the metabolism. So we develop something that's called a reactive oxidant species. Um, And that's, again, another part of normal cellular response or cellular metabolism. But when our bodies are under stress, such as going to altitude, there's an increased development in these reactive oxidant species that can cause vasoconstriction or high blood pressure, et cetera, that can all exacerbate in high altitude sickness. The spectrum of high altitude sickness includes headaches. That's fairly common in um, individuals who come to altitude. Um, You can develop high altitude pulmonary edema And so what happens there is there is a breakage of the um, capillary bed of the lung. And so you develop fluid in the lung. And that's what um, uh, that's what our little buddy um, at Kafaro had. And you can also develop high altitude cerebral edema. And that's, um, again, similar breakage of um, cells that line the vascular system in the brain and develops um, uh, swelling in the brain because fluid accumulates in the brain. 
<laughs> okay, I followed most of it. Sorry. Um, uh, trying to be simplistic about something that is common, um, but trying not to geek out. Sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's right. Somebody that's been in high altitude a lot, such as Frank, why would he get it all of a sudden? Yeah, so that's a great question. So Frank is in amazing physical shape and lots of people who are in amazing physical shape um, will have either acute mountain sickness or that high altitude sickness. Um, They can also develop pulmonary edema or cerebral edema. Um, There is predispositions that we don't fully understand as to why certain people develop it. We do know if you've had it once, you're more likely to have it again. Some I know of um, two other um, risk factors that would put healthy people at risk for developing um, acute mountain sickness or high altitude sickness. That's if you um, have a recent infection or getting over a recent infection, you suddenly go to altitude at a higher risk for that. Or if you were at, um, or if you recently had uh, uh, engaged in really high athletic um, events. Um, marathon running, um, completing a tough mutter or something along those lines at sea level, and then suddenly going to altitude for whatever reason, those individuals can be predisposed to high altitude sickness as well. Okay. So, uh, I guess signs of altitude sickness. Mm -hmm. So some of the more common signs include headache, um, feeling, um, just off, Dizziness, feeling nauseated, um, vomiting um, is also another common sign. People feel more fatigued, and that's a a combination of two things. Number one, just being at altitude and lower oxygen, but also when people go to altitude, they they sleep differently. Okay. Um, So, and that's a result of um, having a higher respiratory rate. Um, in response to lower oxygen, but as we sleep, our breathing patterns change. So we can feel more fatigued because we're not sleeping as deeply or as comfortably as we would at lower altitude, which um, if your listeners have um, a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea and they require um, CPAP or BiPAP for sleep, um, that's also an important um, uh, group that needs to talk to their doctor before they come to altitude. Okay. And then, you know, kind of almost prevent, uh, yeah, prevention steps that you can take. Yeah. So tried and true, um, best primary prevention against high altitude sickness is consider the altitude that you're going to be going to and plan out a very slow ascent to altitude. So if you are going to 12,000 feet, um, a relative um, rule of thumb is once you get to 8,000 feet or so, if you're feeling those um, effects, headache, fatigue, et cetera, um, either staying there until those symptoms resolve um, and slowly increasing to altitude as slow as you can as time allows. If those symptoms do not abate, um, coming down to a lower altitude where you didn't have symptoms is important. So s- very slow ascent is um, is probably the best way to prevent high altitude sickness. If there is no way to delay your ascent or um, have a slow ascent um, to a higher altitude, then getting a prescription for acetazolamide. Um, and there's a variety of um, 
strategies to use azelozolamide either the day of the ascent or the day before you start to ascend to altitude, um, and your physician can um, work uh, can help you support you through that and give you some good guidance there. So, um, if I were going to go up to uh, say ten thousand feet, I get to like nine thousand and I start feeling this, and then I go back down to <clears throat> I don't know seventy five hundred eight thousand. Once my symptoms have like let up and I feel better, can I go back up and I'll probably be okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. If you take a, a slower ascent, and what I would say is individuals who are really attuned to um, what their body is telling them, um, it, uh, it, they're going to be more likely to not push through a, uh, a symptom and not ignore a, a symptom. But um, but yes, if you go to a higher altitude, not feeling well, come down to a lower altitude where you feel okay sit there for a bit and then you can go back up maybe the next day again as time allows the slower ascent the better for sure okay and another thing i remember you guys talking about was even like as a prevention thing if you like say you're coming to denver or really just kind of anywhere in the west wherever you fly into or maybe like the first major town i guess like stay the night yep right before you go up Absolutely. So if you're coming from, if you're coming from Rushville, Nebraska. Yep. <laughs> hey, we're at 4,000 feet. Beautiful. Oh, you are? Yeah. I didn't realize you were that yeah. high. Look at that. Uh, no wonder I was dying on that hill, <laughs> that mountain. I was like, holy hell. Um, so yeah, so if you're coming from sea level and you come to Denver, which is 5280, spending the night in Denver and then going up to, you know, Breckenridge or um, any of the mountain towns, you know, anywhere from 7,500 to 8,000 feet, spending another night there. And if you're deciding to go into the back country, um, taking your time going up to your goal altitude, um, you know, over a 24 to 48 hour period, um, I think would be probably best practice to help avoid uh, developing those symptoms. So if you were experiencing these symptoms, at what point would you hit the button? Uh, (laughs) Yes, hit the button um, and get the heck out. If you're feeling these symptoms, they're not resolving, you are becoming um, ataxic. So what does that mean? That means that you are stumbling, you have imbalance even on the flat surface, Um, you're seeing double vision, you're um, not making sense to the people who are around you, you are coughing up um, pink frothy sputum or having... um, Poor Frank, he's not even here to like say, hey, wait a second. Um, Then I would say absolutely hit that button because at that point, as you're developing symptoms of high altitude pulmonary edema or high altitude cerebral edema, um, the... Um, it becomes a medical emergency and you need to descend the mountain as quickly as possible and get to lower altitude, uh, receive supplemental oxygen, or in worst case scenarios, um, getting into a hyperbaric um, center. Okay. And uh, with that prevention as well, I know we talked about like cardiovascular training, working on your cardio. Absolutely. So good cardiovascular fitness so that you have um, the ability to flex up in your heart rate response and your cardiac output, I think is going to be um, or is just good practice. So if you're coming up to stay in the backcountry for any um, any activity that you're interested in, be it hunting. Um, and if you're hunting, it's probably even more important to be in really good functional 
um, shape. So that way when you're, when you're successful and you get your animal and you can pack that out, um, which puts a, um, a physical load on your body, being in good cardiovascular fitness so that you have that reserve is critically important. If you're going to the backcountry just to camp and hike, um, still being in good cardiovascular fitness, I think is critically important. Um, but if you're not in the t- um, tip top CrossFit shape or et cetera, um, or being able to run a marathon, just being able to have good functionality, I think is important in taking your time to get to your destination. Gotcha. Okay. So we kind of talked about medication a little bit before, but I want to tackle some things like supplements that you can buy right off the shelf. So there are lots of over-the-counter medication supplements that um, have been developed to to act as preventative medicine for a variety of different conditions. Um, and certainly there are a group of um, chemicals, supplements, et cetera, that have been touted as um, being good at preventative um, medicine for high altitude. So I can take them in sort of three big categories. Um, we can think about the vitamins, um, antioxidants, and adaptogens. So the vitamins can include a variety of sort of well-known or common um, vitamins. So that includes sodium, potassium, magnesium. Um, those medic- um, those vitamins, I think, are good for um, good dietary practice. Um, those medication, those vitamins can help with um, electrolyte losses during the dehydration. So. As we think about how our bodies acclimatize at altitude, we do tend to urinate more. It's a natural, normal response. If we're not maintaining good fluid intake and good electrolyte intake as well, we can become pretty significantly dehydrated. So I think a good vitamin supplement um, would be helpful to help um, avoid dehydration, but ultimately is just making sure that you're taking in um, uh, a decent amount of fluid to prevent dehydration is key. Uh, There's a couple of the vitamins that have been looked at and studied. Remember, I am a physician, so I look at um, the science and the data in regard to what has been effective or not effective. So we oftentimes um, uh, think about medicine in two different categories. We think about anecdotal medicine. So what does anecdotal mean? Um, What that means is um, if I'm seeing something in clinical practice and um, and I try something and there's been a good effect, that's an anecdote in medicine. It's a N of one if, um, per se. But for someone um, like me, I'm a very evidence-based practice physician. I want to mm-hmm. look to see what the science has told me, what the randomized control trials, which are considered the gold standard for clinical practice in regard to interventions, um, particularly with medications, are important. So in looking at the science and the data behind some of the vitamins, um, there's um, three different vitamins that have been studied that I think have um, decent data in regard to um, in, uh, um, helping to alleviate symptoms of altitude sickness, not necessarily preventative, but may help to alleviate. And those include the magnesium, uh, magnesium, vitamin E, and vitamin C. Okay. So vitamin E and vitamin C are also... Um, um, they, they help to, um, this is another geek out term, but they help to scavenge reactive oxidant species. So they're also antioxidant, if you will. 
So there is some, in theory, um, there is some suggestion that it helps to decrease the reactive oxidant species that is developed in hypoxic um, uh, environments and during exercise. So there is some data that suggests that there's a trend to helping to um, prevent or alleviate those symptoms Okay. of high altitude. Okay. Roger. Okay. So, um, when we think about other antioxidants or in particular adaptogens, so adaptogens are um, very much in vogue right now. They're all the rage in um, naturopathic medicine and they are um, really thought of as being able to decrease inflammation and stress. So when our body is under stress, um, be it in exercise, be it high altitude, uh, or any other environment that you uh, you would consider a physiologic stress, antioxidants and adaptogens um, have been touted at decreasing inflammation. So what are the antioxidants and what are the adaptogens? So antioxidants, like I said, vitamin C, vitamin E, Milk thistle, which is the active ingredient in milk thistle, is something that's amusing. It's sort of also a mouth word. It's silymarin. So it's both anti-inflammatory and antioxidant. Um, Grapeseed extract, which those of you out there who drink red wine, um, all about the grapeseed extract, um, also contains some antioxidants. Uh, And then um, some of the adaptogens so that people, when you're looking at your supplement, um, the label, um, this might um, be helpful for you all. So there is a reishi mushroom extracts or the gandoderma extract. Uh, the Panox gin, um, ginseng, golden root extract or rhododella extract, and then this is another mouthful, which is the um, Shisandra berry extract. So those are both; uh, those are all considered under the rubric of adaptogens um, okay. or antioxidants. So good for you, or well, theoretically, they're good for you. Many of the adaptogens. Um, have been looked at um, for thousands of years. They're part of the um, they're part of the the pharmacology, if you will, for um, Chinese medicine or traditional Chinese medicine. So they are rooted in some traditional medicine um, mm-hmm. therapies that that, from an anecdotal standpoint, probably have some effect. Um, but when I look at that, when I look at this under the lens of what's the science behind it. It's more theoretical than actually having true effect. So in looking at all these individual medications, there's probably minimal risk of taking any of these combination of medications that help you, quote unquote, acclimatize Mm -hmm. um, with a supplement. Minimal risk to those individuals who are healthy, who do not have medical conditions and who are not taking medications. The reason that I bring that up is that many of these medications, particularly the adaptogens, are metabolized through the liver. And they can interact um, with um, the metabolites of um, prescription medications and can have uh, pretty untoward effects. Um, Specifically, the... um, Specifically, for example, is the reishi mushrooms or the gandoderma extracts. Um, they can be very toxic to the liver. Okay. 
particularly if you take them um, over time. In short-term increments, probably lower risk, but if you have liver disease, it could certainly exacerbate that, or as I said, potentially um, interact with other medications that are metabolized to the liver. Ginkgo biloba is something that's widely available. People use it for all sorts of um, particular reasons, um, such as um, increasing memory, um, decreasing the effects of something that's called peripheral vascular disease. So um, diseases that affect um, the blood flow to your lower extremities. And um, it, uh, ginkgo biloba itself can prevent the blood clotting um, of, um, of patients or people. So it can um, cause you to bleed. And if you're in the backcountry and you have an accident and you're taking this and, you're, uh, and you've prevented the normal coagulopathic cascade from taking effect, it could um, have obviously detrimental effects. Yikes. That's probably the more extreme um, right. of the side effects. Some of the other side effects of some of these medications include headache, dizziness, nausea, diarrhea, and quite honestly, do you want to be in the backcountry having the Hershey squirts? Probably not. <laughs> so I'm just, <laughs> I'm just keep that in mind. Um, so um, without going into too much detail about all the different side effects, yeah. I mean, I think collectively what I would say is there's, there is no, although the, although a lot of these complexes and a lot of these combinations have been touted as you take this and you, this will prevent altitude sickness, yeah. the end of the day, um, what I would say, good cardiovascular fitness, healthy diet and slow ascent, that's going to be your trifecta for preventing high altitude sickness. Okay. And something else that I thought was interesting when we were talking earlier was uh, you talked about the placebo effect. Ah, uh, yes. The placebo effect. Yep. So um, there are lots of supplements that are out there that um, tout improvement in your exercise fitness, improvement in your endurance, improvement in your metabolism, et cetera, et cetera. And you have lots of individuals who will say, I took this and it worked for me. I lost XYZ pounds. I was able to run XYZ miles. I was able to climb XYZ mountain and look at my grand slam of animals that I mm -hmm. um, harvested because I took these supplements. So what is the placebo effect? The placebo effect is that you can give an individual medication um, a, a medication that is essentially sugar water or just sugar and they will have an improvement or see an improvement in um, whatever activity that they're doing. It's because they have a belief that um, they believe in this particular medication that it is working. So the placebo effect is very real. It does occur, um, but it does... Um, so, so you will have, I think, you will have individuals who will say, yes, I took vitamin whatever and mm -hmm. it worked for me. You should try it too. Yeah. And then the other, one of the big things I wanted to drive home, because I think from seriously, from a health standpoint, like some of, you know, some of the supplements on the shelf that you can just pick up and take, like I would have, if I would have been on some other medication, I never would have thought, hey, maybe I should like look and see what's in this to see if it's going to have a negative effect on whatever else I'm taking because it just would, I don't think it would have ever occurred to me. Mm -hmm. And but. a lot of that is because it's, it's, um, the supplements are natural, 
right? So if it's created in nature, how can it be harmful? Um, and that, that is true to a certain extent, but if you're taking some, um, if you're taking medications for a, uh, clinical indication, there can be interactions and it would behoove anybody to whatever you're putting into your body. Um, if it's a supplement that's touted to be something amazing, um, common sense would dictate if it's that amazing um, it's probably not something that you can easily purchase over the counter right and so it would, um, so I would encourage everyone to take a look at the label um, and if there's anything that you can't um, pronounce easily or you don't understand um, take it to someplace either your local pharmacist your local physician your local scientist um, to simply say how could this potentially affect me okay are there any other kind of off the shelf things that you would recommend people take like a drink mix, maybe like emergency? Sure. So emergency is a combination of a variety of um, uh, vitamins, but in particular, it's high dose of vitamin C. So high dose vitamin C is something that's looked at to try to help um, increase immunity um, and uh, help um to prevent and or decrease infections, et cetera. Um, I think that one of the benefits of vitamin C or really any supplement to help with, um, to help you feel better is to think about what is the mechanism and, and how it's making you feel better. So for vitamin C, I think the risk of taking higher doses of vitamin C, um, for short term is low. If I can encourage my patients to drink more when they're feeling bad, that will help them feel better. So if they're taking vitamin C and they're also drinking a liter of water with it, I'm completely okay with that. Um, when I'm thinking about supplements that I advise my patients, um, I, I guess this is a little bit, this is a sort of getting into the scope of um, medicine and medical practice. And I'm a little bit hesitant mm -hmm. to give too much advice um, without seeing an individual, but I would say maintaining um, adequate hydration is key. Um, so whatever supplement that you think that can help with um, electrolyte losses or replete electrolyte losses, I think is, um, I think it's reasonable to look at the label and see, again, are there vitamins that are well known and common? Um, or are there things in there that I can't pronounce? If there are things in there that you can't pronounce, it's probably worthwhile thinking about what exactly is it and what does it, what could it potentially do to my body? Gotcha. So kind of like off of the scope of just, you know, high altitude sickness, sickness itself, just staying hydrated in the backcountry, you want to keep up on your electrolytes. That's kind of probably the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. When you're in the backcountry, you have a lot of insensible losses because you're breathing more rapidly. So we lose moisture through our lungs, but we are also going to be sweating more. And so the electrolytes that are, we tend to lose are sodium and potassium through sweat. And so something that ha that can help replete those, I think, is um, helpful and good. Um, but making sure that you have fr uh, that you replete your free water is important. So in thinking about, um, you know, what's when you're not doing activity um, that is um, that's overly aggressive or or pushes you too much from the cardiovascular fitness, like sort of stable baseline activity. Eight fluid ounces um, of water at least six to eight times a day. 
absolutely, that should be your goal. If you are working out regularly an hour, um, at least three times a week, which is the um, minimum recommendations that I um, give to my patients, um, I would encourage them to drink at least a water, a liter of water after um, moderate exercise. And if, um, if you're able to maintain um, good adequate intake of two to four liters of water, that's fantastic. A day. If you're in the okay. back country, I would probably say a good four liters of water if you're able um, to um, have access to that. It is important. Okay. Well, that's kind of all I had. Did we cover everything, you think? I think we covered a lot, probably more than you wanted. Well, all in about 35 minutes. Uh-huh. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, I think... What I would say for your listeners, if they're looking at something, they're looking at a supplement, um, good sources uh, for them to look at on the internet, because there is the internet of things and it's widely Mm -hmm. available. WebMD is um, a great um, resource that they can put in um, what a supplement is and what it could potentially do. And WebMD is um, something that looks at science and research. Um, PubMed, which is um, an open source um, search engine. Um, It tends to be um, heavy in the science and the scientific lingo. Um, But I think that is another, um, uh, another good source for people to look up information. Uh, Dr. Google and Dr. Wikipedia, I would um, look at, um, you can certainly use, but take it with a grain of salt because there's a lot of misinformation on there. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but um, there is, I do not want to undercut the value of your local physician. Um, they're there to help you and support you. Awesome. Well, thank you again for digging so deep in it. Because I know it was kind of it was a <laughs> three pages. Yeah, it was stuff. fun. It was a lot of fun. It was uh, it was good to look at for sure. Cool. Thanks. 